Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Phipps. I work at the church across the river where martinis cost another $5 and we never see daylight. Everything's supplemented with electricity over there. Good to be with you this morning. One of the more time-consuming parts of a minister's job, especially during the summer, is to officiate weddings. At this point, I have lost count as to how many weddings I've officiated over the years. This summer was a very light one for me as weddings go. In three months' time, I only had to officiate five weddings. And that is just about the right amount before I start saying things to God in my private devotional times like, God, are you, you sure that you don't want me to just move to Vegas and work in a drive through wedding chapel or something? Life would be so much easier. <laughs> but seriously, each year... After the summer passes, and I look back over this very intense amount of time where I'm working at both ends of the spectrum, I think to myself, man, that is such an honor to be entrusted with that experience, to share that experience in the life of the couple and the life of the family. Some of my best memories are surrounding these weddings. Now, after officiating at enough weddings, though, I have started to observe some very predictable patterns. I see these patterns at all weddings, uh, in every one I've done, no matter what time of the summer it's occurring. Number one, one of the mothers of the two people getting married is usually a control freak. And I've learned that I should keep my distance from this person at all costs throughout the wedding weekend. Number two, one of the fathers of the two people getting married can tell you anything you want to know about one or more of the following topics. Hunting, power tools, medicine, bourbon, or Ronald Reagan. I don't know why it is, but every dad will always know about one or more of those topics. Number three has two parts. Three, part A. I marry people in the same suit that I bury people in. Because I suppose I'm cheap. And so the next time that you are at a wedding and your mind starts to drift because you're at your fourth or your fifth wedding, that'll give you something to think about during the ceremony. 3B, the clothes that people in the audience wear to weddings are also the clothes that they wear to funerals. Am I right? You're all cheap. You have no regard for the meaningful experiences in the life of people. We're trying to save money, so we wear the same thing. Now, number four, at the reception, every wedding, at some point during the electric slide, I always slip away to hide in the restroom because I hate that song and I don't want to dance to it. And while I am in the restroom, without fail, no matter what state I'm in, no matter where the wedding is being performed, there is always someone in the men's restroom who is completely hammered. And I have to give them pastoral counsel because they are depressed because the wedding reminded them of a recent breakup that had just occurred for them. And it's usually like a really long-term, very deep and meaningful relationship. They started dating two weeks ago or something like that. And the wedding has really reminded them of how upset they are. On a side note, I usually awkwardly conclude these counseling sessions by giving them the times and the locations of our church, knowing that they will not remember any of the dialogue because they are sleeping off the hangover at the La Quinta Inn the next morning. (laughs) Number five, finally and above all, and Ben talked about this a little bit, what is the biggest pattern that I see at weddings? Weddings are, above any other 
human experience that we might participate in. A model of diversity. We will encounter every type of person at a wedding, any type of label we use to label human beings, racially, economically, educationally, relationally, any of those labels, a wedding houses them all, and they will be sitting at your reception table at the wedding. So be ready. Our parable today is about a wedding reception. Jesus is talking, he's using this metaphor of a wedding reception to teach us about the kingdom of God, what it's like, who the players are inside of it, who's in charge, all of the ins and outs of the kingdom of God. Jesus is using a wedding reception to illustrate what that means for us. And if you are anything like me during the wedding season, the last thing you might want to try to work into your summer is another wedding, another gift, another unavailable weekend, maybe another plane ticket, another try at making that suit or dress that looks so good at the beginning of the summer fit the same way it did at the end of the summer after you've eaten tacos all summer. (laughs) Weddings are beautiful, weddings are wonderful, weddings are sweet. That is until wedding four or five or six in the summer, then they become kind of bland to us. We might even invent excuses to get out of going to them. And I think that the people in this passage, at least I like to believe the people in this passage, are kind of like us, you and I, when we reach the end of our wedding stamina at the end of the summer. I like to think that that's kind of where this story picks up and starts to illustrate what it is the kingdom of God actually works like inside. The invitations go out. They have all of the usual stuff to say that wedding invitations always do. It's going to be a great time with family and friends. Come celebrate with us. There's going to be a carving station and a chocolate fountain and ice sculptures and praise God Almighty, an open bar. It's going to be wonderful. But no one responds to the invitation. If you're here today and you're engaged or you're recently married or you think way, way back to that time 100 years ago when you got married, you remember sending out those invitations and it's very common that no one responds right away. And we start making these other phone calls. Are you still coming? Did you get the invitation? It didn't get returned in the mail. But no one responds to these invitations just like this in our passage. It's just typical. That's the way it is with weddings. People are busy. So the invitations go out again, and this time they are delivered by messenger. This time, though, they actually get responded to because a person is there making the invite. And they say things like, I'm not coming. I'm busy. I'm gardening that day. I got to get this gardening stuff done before the end of the summer. I have to work in the shop that day. I can't make it. You know that I love you. You know that I am a friend of the family. I support you. I'm so happy that you're getting married. But unfortunately, the particular week you want me to come, I just can't. I have to work. I'm busy. What do you want me to do? Set aside my whole life? We're friends. We're family. Then still others who are invited to this wedding reception, they get so bothered by this messenger showing up and inviting them personally, that they assault the messengers that deliver the message. Can you imagine that? Like, I, I, I don't think I would do that, maybe under certain circumstances, but a messenger invites me to a wedding, and they open the door and they hand it to you, and you just stab them. <laughs> like, that. this is what's happening in this passage that's crazy, what's going on. Thanks, Jesus. Nice parable about the kingdom. 
And so the father of the groom, who is naturally enraged by this, I mean, people are murdering the messengers, all of these very busy, very hardworking people, he becomes angry, he becomes hurt, and in the midst of this hurt and this anger, he has this different idea. He thinks to himself, well, if the family and the friends aren't going to come to this wedding, I'm just going to go out into the city and send my messengers out into the city and invite total strangers I'm just going to invite anybody, whoever we see, we're going to round them up, stick them in a bus, get them to the reception hall. And that's what they do. They go out, they get all of these strangers, they bring them back to the reception hall, the job is complete, the seats are filled, the carving station is ready, the DJ is ready, the lights are cued, everybody has their drink in hand waiting to welcome the wedding party. And then the king has another one of his emotional outbursts. He sees something that's not right. What is wrong with this guy? Does he have emotional problems? He's flying off the handle over and over again in the story. There's a guy that isn't dressed like everybody else sitting at one of the reception tables. And so the king acts in such a way that makes us kind of question his intentions. He tells his messengers, tie him up, throw him outside, into this garbage dump outside the city. And then the story ends with, many are invited, but few make it. Thank you, Jesus. I have no idea what you're trying to tell me here. What is going on in this story? Is this just the story we use to frighten children to get them to do what we want to do? Like, am I supposed to say to my daughter, read her this story at night and say, now, now obey, or God's going to tie you up and throw you into hell. Like, what, what is going on here? This king is messed up. The story is messed up. And this is a story. The problem is that this is a story that Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. What is going on here? Awkward. If you are prone to believing in a God of love, that Jesus so often speaks of in the New Testament. The story doesn't make any sense. If you're prone to believing in a God of childish temper tantrums and eternal judgment for very trivial things, this has now become your favorite story in the Bible. This story has some things to say to us about two sides. Uh, There's a historical side to this story that's saying some things about the way that God works down through history and the Messiah comes to be and uh, offers his life for humanity. There's a historical side and then there's this side of the story that speaks to us here in modernity where the history has already taken place and we're left to unravel this and ask, how does this apply to my life today? There are some characters in this story that all play a different role in this story and the roles are very important. We have this first batch of characters that are called the family and friends. I can only assume they are this because those are the first people we invite to a wedding. We invite people we know. We send out the invitations to people we know or have known or have a history with. And these are the people in the story that know the king. They know the royal family. They know the son of the king. That's why they're being invited to the wedding. And many theologians would say that this group in the story, this family and friends represent the people of the Old Covenant, Israel, the Jews. God's people, as they're termed so many times in the Bible. God extends 
his invitation to this wedding banquet to the Jewish nation first. And they reject it. Some say that they are busy. Some respond with violence to the message. Second batch of characters are the messengers. And we see in the passage that these characters represent the prophets of the Old Testament, pointing people toward this new covenant that's quickly coming. And these prophets are rejected. They're ignored. Some of them are beaten, assaulted. Some of them are even killed. Third batch of character in the story are these, this group of people, the strangers. And these people in the story represent the Gentiles. Anyone in the world who is not Jewish, that's who these people represent in the story. They do not know the king. They have no history with the royal family. They don't know his son. They are not friends of the family. They're complete strangers to the royal family. And God invites his own people into the wedding banquet, and they reject it, so he decides to invite the Gentiles into the banquet since his own people rejected it. And then finally, character batch number four, the king and his son. The king is God the Father. The son is Jesus Christ. That's the historical understanding of the story. It's referencing a lot of Old Testament prophecy to get us to understand the way that God is including all people. But then we have these big problems. We've got this angry king who's flying off the handle. We've got people getting stabbed. (laughs) We've got people getting assaulted. We've got this thing that's supposed to be a celebration and people are getting tied up and thrown into hell. We still have to unravel all of this. What does all of that mean in our lives today? What is all of that about? I can tell you what I think here, and this might be a stretch if you're just a person, if you're a biblical literalist and you just think of it as, Bible's a book about history, it means this and only this. Okay, that's fine, but then let's just concede that nothing in the Old Testament applies to us anymore since that was written to Israel, all right? But if you'll give me just a little bit of rope today, you can hang me with it later. I want to tell you what I think this means for our lives today. And just give me a chance if you're here this morning and you're a biblical literalist. There are a lot of parallels in this passage to our lives today. And if we look at what this passage means for our lives today, it has a lot less to do with people that are family and friends in this finite casing over here and people that are strangers that don't know the king in this finite casing over here with this huge chasm in between. But what it looks more like for our lives today is that there is this spectrum that we all find ourselves on and we're in various spots on the spectrum depending on where we are in our, are in our lives and what our human experiences have stacked up to and what we are going through and what we believe about God and how we're applying that to human life. We find that on one end of the spectrum is this closeness of friends and family of the king. Other end of the spectrum are strangers who don't know him, don't have anything to do with him. He's not even involved in human life. And then there are these cliques in between. And we'll find ourselves somewhere on that spectrum. Meaning that if we're just inside of the family and friends clique, there's a little bit of the strangers thing going on inside of us. If we're closer to the strangers uh, camp, we'll find a lot of these family and friends traits applying to us in our life of faith. 
And here's what I think this is trying to say to us, and this is only as it applies to me, I'm looking at it through my subjective lens. But if we look at these families and family and friends figures in this passage, these are very hardworking, very committed people, alive inside of the kingdom, contributing to the goodness and the, the operational structure of the kingdom, its economy. They, they own shops, they own gardens, they're making that kingdom beautiful and they're, they're making it operational, they're keeping it afloat, they're taking care of this kingdom. And their role in this story, and maybe this is the role we find ourselves if, if we're here today and we would consider ourselves a Christian or a person of the kingdom. They feel that it's more important to be working in the kingdom and contributing to the kingdom and serving in the kingdom and making the kingdom function. They feel that that is more important than it is to celebrate in the kingdom, to rest in the kingdom, to refresh in the kingdom from time to time in the presence of the king in this banquet where the king does it all and he simply invites them without doing anything to recharge, to refresh, to remember why they are in the kingdom. There's this other group at the other end of the spectrum called the strangers. And what's really interesting about this metaphor of the kingdom of God, the strangers, those who don't know the king, are alive inside of the very same kingdom. They live in the same kingdom that the family and friends do, but they're just not aware of what it's all about. They might not even believe that there is a king or that there's a castle somewhere. They, they might see traces in this kingdom of what might be the actions of some kind of a king, but they're, they're just busy at their own lives too. And they are rounded up, the text says, by this, I don't know, mysterious way of the king drawing them to himself. And they're brought to the castle and they sit down at these lavish tables And one of them is told, you're not wearing the right thing. I'm tying you up and sending you to hell. Each side of this kingdom, we have the king being angry at both parties. Now, why is that? Well, think of it like this. If I'm living in a kingdom and this king invites me to something, think about this in theological terms for a second. The king being God, his son being Jesus Christ. Those of us who are family and friends who find our meaning through work in the kingdom, God is ever inviting us saying, it's not about that. I'm appreciative that you do that. That needs to be done. But what this is about, what kingdom living is about, is about us knowing the why behind the reasons that we work. And God is always, always daily inviting us to refresh in his presence the presence of the king. He's inviting us to banquets daily. And our response to him is often, I'm busy. And especially what I'm busy with is the stuff in your kingdom. I love you, God. I love your kingdom. I'm for your kingdom. I'm behind its initiatives and behind its programming. I participate in everything that you offer. I'm busy. I can't stop and just rest. I'm working in your kingdom. Wouldn't God, wouldn't the king naturally be enraged 
if he's trying to help us and we're always saying, no, I'm too busy for you and I'm too busy with your stuff. On the flip side, the strangers getting thrown out of the banquet, what does that mean? They're not wearing the right thing. There's a very interesting passage in the book of Romans, and if you read the New Testament, it just kind of keeps unfolding in these metaphors. And metaphors that are later will point back to older metaphors and help us kind of make sense of it. That's why it's important that we read all of the Bible. There's a passage in Romans, though, where Paul, who is a Jewish man that God uses to deliver his message to the Gentiles, writes about something, and look at some of these parallels in the book of Romans, and this will help us understand the stranger's part. It says this, But make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all of your day-by-day obligations. You see the parallel there to the families and friends? All of your day-to-day obligations that you lose track of the time and doze off, oblivious to God, Too busy to notice him. The night is about over. The dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God's putting the finishing touches on the salvation work he began when we first believed. There's this history here. These are people that know God and there's this spot somewhere back at the beginning where it was about grace, where it was about knowing that we didn't understand this right and God invited us in and then we history happens and we're we're looking back at that and the experience we're having now is much different than it was when we first believed we can't afford to waste a minute we must not squander these precious daylight hours in frivolity and indulgence and sleeping around and in dissipation and bickering and grabbing everything in sight now listen to this and how this applies to these strangers Get up out of bed. You're invited to this thing. Get dressed. Don't loiter and linger. They're waiting in the town, the text said. Waiting until the very last minute. Dress yourselves in Christ. Be up and about. What's the deal with this guy getting thrown out? The issue of this parable is, is, is that people are despising grace. The metaphor for this clothing is Christ and what he has done for us. And if we're fully a stranger and we're all the way on this other side of the spectrum and we don't understand who God is, the way in is Christ. The metaphor is Jesus. Grace, a garment we don't deserve. If we're family and friends and we look back over this historical perspective of our faith, we got the garment the same way and anyone who enters the castle enters the castle as a stranger. This passage, the big idea that it's trying to get across to us this morning, this metaphor that can look so confusing, is trying to remind us to not despise grace. If we've been here for a long time and we know it all, and we're committed to working in the kingdom. we got to remember this isn't about work. If we're a complete stranger and we know nothing of it, we got to remember that we don't get inside because we dress ourselves or because we don't dress ourselves. We get inside because God dresses us and offers Jesus to us. 
And what looks like these two opposite things is Jesus just trying to put these two, two spectrums together and saying everybody's the same. We all get in and we all stay in by grace and the tendency for those of us who have been in for some time is to be bored with it. The tendency for those of us who don't think we deserve to be here is to think, well, I can't get in unless I earn it. And in some way, shape, or form, if we overlap those perspectives, they cover all of us in the room. And God is trying to get us to realize that the kingdom of God is about grace. It's the only way in, it's the only way to be sustained, is through grace. One author writes it this way, this this robe, this clothing is woven in the loom of heaven and it has not one thread in it of human devising. It is all of God. And my challenge to us today, myself included, because I have all of these things in my life too in various spots in the spectrum from time to time. If you're here and you've believed in God for a long time and you've believed in Jesus for a long time and you're frustrated and you're burned out and you're tired of this just not working right and you're always just mad at the way that God is orchestrating his kingdom. You are lost in your garden. You are lost in your shop and you need to shut it down and remember why you believed what you first believed. If you are here today and the idea of Jesus or the idea of God does not make sense to you, it's not intellectually honest for you to believe such a thing. God is telling you that you are welcome in his house and welcome at his banquet with your questions while you figure things out. You are welcome in the banquet even if you don't believe in the banquet yet. God loves you. He's for you. He's willing to extend that clothing to you, that grace to you, even if you don't understand all of this yet and you don't have to earn it. The kingdom of God is a place where we are allowed to be in process. Whether we are family or whether we are strangers, we will die in process inside of the kingdom of God. And God asks us all to live that way inside of his kingdom. Grace is supposed to be bothersome. It's supposed to be strange. It's not supposed to fully make sense. It should amaze us and offend us simultaneously. And so if you're offended this morning, good. If you're amazed this morning, good. That's what the words of Jesus are intended to do to us and the character of God and the love of God that blows our minds and extends beyond our heads. That's what we're supposed to learn. Can we stand? Let's pray. God, we come to you with who we are, to all that you are, We are, every one of us, a walking paradox. 
We believe things that we don't live. We live things that we don't believe. We feel that there's some need in this life to stay busy at work at the neglect of you or to work ourselves up enough to being invited in. Forgive us for making this so often an adventure and missing the point. God, it's our greatest desire that we would just find these places of rest where we live from these places of rest where everything that we do in your kingdom is not an initiation to get something from you but it's a response to your grace. And we want to be there even though we may not be. And God, I'm just asking that you would help each of us to see that. Confound us in our lives where we need to be confounded. Pull the ground out from under us where we need the ground pulled out from under us. God, for those of us that need to know that you just love us regardless of how we're performing, put people in our path and situations to where we can start to just see glimpses of that. God, as a community, would you make us people that live and breathe grace, not people who react in judgment. Thank you for loving us today. Amen. So, um, one of the other things that we do, like weddings that become monotonous and boring, every week here at Forefront, and we do this in Manhattan too every week, we participate in something together called communion or the Eucharist. And if you are anything like me, I've taken communion more times than I've been to weddings, and it's often just something that we do. It's tradition. Somewhere long ago, it meant something. But now it's just what we do because we're Christians. And today, I would like to elevate that a little bit in your thinking if you are prone like I am to just... It means something very deep, very special. The juice, the shed blood of Jesus, the cracker, the broken body of Jesus. This is a macrocosm to the world, what the microcosm of the parable is. The point of the table is grace. God is inviting all of us. The table of God is open to everyone. Grace raises valleys, it levels mountains. And what we're to remember when we take this bread and we drink this juice is that God is leveling the playing field. Jesus is saying, those of you that don't think you're good enough, you are. Those of you who think you're good enough, you're not. Because we get in this way. This is an example of grace. You don't deserve it. You get it anyway. And God's inviting us all. Let's let that be our inner dialogue as we approach these elements this morning. Because we don't take communion at all. We receive communion that's extended to us. Amen.